This podcast is a production of Schweitzer, a United Methodist Church, transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to talk about what kids need to know. I'm still using as a major resource for this series, Tim Elmore's book, 12 Huge Mistakes That Parents Can Avoid, as well as we're going to be looking today at some Old Testament scriptures about a story about a father, um, a good dude that had one basic flaw in terms of uh, how he raised his own sons. So let's look uh, first at uh, some childhood messages that Elmore says, Tim Elmore in his book, says that all kids need to get. Every child, uh, every child before they hit kindergarten, if you will, needs to know that they're loved, they're unique, they have gifts, talents, abilities, that they're safe, and they're valuable. Now, every child needs to get that message, and the sooner in life that we feel valued and loved and safe, the better are we prepared to go to school and to get on with our childhood. Now, uh, as you know, if you were here last week, I have a grandson named Oren, and some people keep asking me how he's doing. And so, um, one of the things that I notice as I talk to Oren is, I tell him how much I love him. I tell him how much uh, he looks like me, so cute, uh, with the <laughs> not so much hair, little pot belly. Uh, I, I tell him how crazy, wonderful he really is. And I think at three months of age, he's getting something. He's getting something about how he is absolutely the object of some people's affection, and he's safe, he's valued, he's loved. Every three-month-old can begin to get those messages. Every three-year-old child needs to get those messages. But Elmore does something else to us in his book. He tells us that there's a different set of messages that adolescents need to get or kids need to get before they go into their adult years. And he says that these sets, this set of messages, is just as important as the first set. So the adolescent messages that people need to know, that teenagers need to know, to be able to be prepared and go on in life is that life is difficult. That you're not always going to be in control of things. That you're not that important. Yeah, you're important, but you're not the center of your universe. You can be too full of self-importance. If you feel that way or think that, oh my goodness, you're in for a rude awakening. And that someday you're going to die. (laughs) And that life is not just about you. Now, that's a tough set of messages to hear sometimes. Especially in a culture that can be so narcissistic. A culture that centers on us. And yet, those are the kind of messages that every kid needs to know as well. You know, one of the interesting things uh, is that uh, we as parents, and, and I've, I've learned this the hard way, <laughs> we as parents cannot always be cleaning up 
for our kids' messes. Uh, not saying I always did, but it's hard sometimes, isn't it, to let your child learn responsibility or suffer through some things or not try to fix the problem. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a story from the Old Testament, the story of Eli and his sons. Now, Eli was the high priest in ancient Israel. If I could compare a world leader today with Eli's responsibilities, I would say he was like the Pope. Just as Pope Francis is in charge of 1.2 billion Catholics, he's in charge of all of Roman Catholicism, he's in charge of the Vatican, Eli was in charge of the full religion of faith of ancient Israel. This is before the time there were kings, and so he's kind of like the judge. He's the spiritual leader. He's the high priest, the head priest over the religious operations, okay? And he's a good dude. He's a good guy. He takes his responsibilities seriously. In fact, one of the things that we're not going to look at today, but if you know the biblical story, you're aware that Eli helped to mentor a little boy by the name of Samuel who became his, uh, his uh, protege. And so we want to know that Eli was a person of good qualities, and yet he was flawed in this one way, that he failed to hold his own sons to accountability and consequences for their own actions. So I invite you to look at, with me at this scripture. It's in the front of your Pray, Study, Grow if you'd like to follow along from 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. Notice the first verses say this, that Eli's own sons were a bad lot. They didn't know God and could not have cared less about the customs of priests among the people. You know, that's a tragic statement, isn't it? That they did not know God. The most important thing that we can do as parents is to help our kids to have a relationship with God. We may be successful in so many other ways, but that's so critical, isn't it? And the tragic thing is that these guys who were put in charge of the priestly functions didn't have a relationship with God themselves. They were spiritual leaders, but they didn't know God. And so they didn't have a respect for God. They didn't have a respect for the Scriptures. And let me just say this, that their religious system was different than ours. And so it seems a little bit foreign to us. But their religious system was that they would bring these animals and they would bring these as, as sacrifices to God. And it was through the gifts of animals that people received the forgiveness of God and were put in a right relationship with God. Okay? And so what we're going to read about in these next scriptures deal with that system and how the Eli's sons didn't have reverence or respect for God. Let's read on. Ordinarily, when someone offered a sacrifice, they brought their animal. The priest's servant was supposed to come up, and while the meat was boiling, stab a three-pronged fork into the cooking pot. The priest then got whatever came up in the fork. That's how it was supposed to happen. Okay? It's kind of like whatever the meat comes up, it may be a good portion of the meat, not so good a portion of the meat. 
That's what Eli's sons would get, but not with them. But this is how Eli's sons treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh to offer sacrifices to God. Before they even burned the fat to God, the priest's servant would interrupt whoever was sacrificing and say, hand over some of that meat for the priest to roast. He doesn't like the boiled meat. He likes his rare. If the man objected, which is what he was supposed to do, he was supposed to object, first let the fat be burned, God's portion, God gets his first. Then take what you want, the servant would demand. No, Eli's sons would say. No, I want it now. If you won't give it, I'll take it. It was a horrible sin these servants were committing. And right in the presence of God, desecrating the holy offerings to God. Okay, we get the picture? Eli's sons thought they were above the rules. They thought the rules didn't apply to them. You know, I'm a pretty big NFL football fan. There's a, another sport that I'm bigger at, but I'm a big NFL fan. But you know what? When athletes think the rules don't apply to them, when stars, uh, when celebrities, oh, what's up with that? So it's a good thing when the NFL is forced or they take the responsibility themselves to hold one player like this week guilty of spousal abuse, another player guilty of child abuse. Because so often people who succeed in life or get on with life, who think life is about them, don't realize that they're not above the rules. That's what Eli failed to teach his sons. Now, we're going to read on the Scripture that some years pass as we pick up the story, and we read these words. By this time, Eli was very old. He was Getting, he kept getting reports on how his sons were ripping off the people and sleeping with the women who helped out at the sanctuary so that they were also guilty of sexual exploitation. Eli took them to task. What's going on here? Why are you doing these things? I hear story after story of your corrupt and evil carrying on. Oh, my sons, this is not right. These are terrible reports I'm getting, stories spreading right and left amongst God's people. If you sin against another person, there's help, God's help. But if you sin against God, who is around to help? So what does Eli do? Nada. Nothing. He doesn't do a thing. He confronts his sons, but he leaves them in charge. And his sons think that because they are in this position and they have the favor of God, they can do what they want. Guess what? They go to battle. They have the Ark of the Covenant. They have the presence of God on the battlefield. They think they'll be spared, but their lives are taken. And when they suffer... As spiritual leaders, when they're not held responsible, oh my goodness, the whole nation of Israel suffers with it. Isn't that true in families, in churches, in organizations, in businesses, in communities, in a nation? 
that there's a certain sense of responsibility and accountability that we all need to play by. There's a sense of character and in, that we follow. And when people don't follow those rules or don't follow those practices, when we don't have to face consequences for our actions, everybody loses. Henry Cloud is a Christian author and psychologist, and he writes in his book, Boundaries for Leaders, about this CEO father of a company. And his son is one of the floor managers. And uh, he witnesses his son, again, berating employees, and belittling them, and not treating them for respect. And so the CEO father calls his son into his office, and he says, Sir, I've watched you berate too many employees. I cannot allow my employees to be treated like that. You're fired. Then he puts his father's cap on and says, Son, I hear you lost your job. Can there, is there anything I can do for you? <laughs> well, that's kind of, that's the balance, isn't it? That's really responsibility. You ever been a part of a job when someone was the favorite? You ever been the employee or the person on staff where you realize that uh, somebody could treat you with disrespect and get away with it? How'd that make you feel? You ever feel like you were the child that was forgotten about or the child that uh, didn't get away with murder while your sibling did? What, is that, uh, what does that feel like? One of the things that we're, we're called to do as a people is to hold people responsible. Kids face their consequences. There are benefits to sowing a life of goodness. You know, the Scripture is still true that if you sow to the flesh, that is, if you sow to your own selfish way of living and you're just looking out always after number one, the crazy thing is when you do that, you're going to reap a corrupted view of life. But if you sow to the Spirit, if you sow to God's character and life, you reap eternal life. Now, there's no guarantees that there's always going to be justice or fairness in this life. That was one of the lessons, right? That adolescence, we have to learn. Life is not always fair, and we're not always in control. But when we do these things, good things tend to happen. And when we do these things, there are consequences for our actions. I'm not talking about rewards and punishment. I'm talking about benefits and consequences. And when we are able to lead that way as parents, as adults, as leaders of organizations, then we are doing everyone a good service. Joseph Grinney is... Uh, the founder of the company Vital Smarts. He's an author of various books, uh, Crucial Conversations, Crucial Confrontations. And Joseph Grinney talks about uh, this young man by the name of Patrick. He said that uh, he saw a lot of uh, potential in Patrick. He poured some of his time and attention to Patrick. He brought Patrick into his own home. So imagine his disappointment when after his home was burglarized, he looked at the surveillance tape 
And what Granny says is he saw Patrick was the one that was pilfering his stuff, had broken into his home. Well, what would Granny do about it? Well, for several weeks, he did nothing. But then Joseph Granny says, I was driving in the neighborhood, and I noticed Patrick was walking along. And I pulled the car over, and I said, hey, Patrick, would you mind getting in the car with me? I want to talk to you. So he got in the car, and he took Patrick to his home. And in, in his home, he told him about the burglary. And he asked Patrick if he, would know any, if he knew anything about that. And Patrick said he didn't. And then he showed Patrick the surveillance tape. And Patrick saw himself in the action. And then Patrick just buried his face in his hands. And then he looked up and he said this, I need to go to jail. But will you be there for me when I get out? And Granny said, sure, I will. What do kids need? What do we all need? We need truth, and we need grace. We need to know that there are consequences and that there are certain actions that are right. And we need to know that when we mess up, We'll face those responsibilities, but the people that love us the most will still be with us as we correct those things that need our attention. I think of Jesus Christ. I think of the balance that Jesus had. You know, I'm not suggesting today that, that we go back to some kind of harsh or hard religion a religion that's full of rules and regulations. I'm not suggesting to us that we need uh, truth without grace. Because when you do that, you get legalistic and cold and harsh. As a kid, I grew up uh, going to some revivals, and I heard these fiery evangelists preach about uh, hell. It scared the hell out of me. <laughs> People like that. We don't need those kind of preachers. But it's also true, <laughs> we don't need grace without truth, because grace without truth cheapens grace. It fails to see how costly the grace of God really is, and it doesn't really transform the human heart. We need grace and truth. Jesus, it's said of Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh, and He made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what kids need. That's what you need. That's what I need. That's what our culture needs. We need both. There's a theologian that was very prominent in the latter part of the 20th century, H. Richard Niebuhr, and he wrote these words as a description of the theology of our culture. 
He said, what we really believe in today as American Christians is that we believe a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Now, let's look at those words just for a moment. Do we really believe that God could be good and righteous and never become upset or angry? Just like we believe any good parent could not get upset or angry? Do we really believe that we don't have sin? That we've fallen short of the glory of God? That we mess up? That we're all just okay without a Savior? We really believe that? Do we really believe that there won't be a sense of judgment sometime? Do we believe that that would be a good thing if there was no judgment, if there was no sense of this is just, this is fair, this is right, and there's some ultimate person in the universe that's in charge of it all? Would that be a good thing if we didn't have this righteous, good judge? And have we been fooled into believing that we don't need the cross, that we don't need the mercy and the forgiveness and the love and the cleansing of Jesus Christ. So I just got to ask you, folks, if that's the theology of our great American narcissistic culture, and I believe it is, I got to ask the question, what if we are wrong? 